Newsletter number one, manners and marketing. I'm presently partway through the editing phase of the next episode of TalkCast, devoted to Stephen Pinker's book, Rationality. The next chapter I'm dealing with is probability, and his book, as I keep saying, is an excellent overview of rationality, as understood by mainstream academia. The last episode of TalkCast, my proper podcast, episode 111, was my discussion of David Deutsch's talk on probability, titled Physics Without Probability. And I think that talk by David serves as what might be called the most up-to-date gold standard understanding of what probability is, given our best understanding of reason and reality, especially quantum theory and the rest of physics. So having completed that episode, it made it difficult not to be hugely nitpicky when it came to going to Pinker's book, Rationality, when he started to talk about probability. Now, I am a bit of a nitpicker, but that can be important for rationality. If we focus on the small errors, maybe the big errors might take care of themselves. Well, not literally. But sometimes one can find patterns in the noise of error, and then it can make the analysis somewhat more swift. So in this case, looking closely at Pinker's book, Rationality, when it comes to the probability chapter, it became apparent there was a particular pattern of errors or misconceptions. And once I thought I'd identified those, then it made appreciating the rest of the chapter for what it was somewhat more simple. So that should be coming out soon. I should say at this point that this is rather like a mini podcast. And for this episode, just this first episode, it's going to be a lot longer than I plan on any future newsletter being. The second episode might be an exception as well. I'm getting used to this format. I may or may not continue to publish this particular content on my usual channels. Maybe this first one can serve as the advertisement for listeners to sign up to the newsletter. Links in the description for that. But I don't plan on polishing this quite as much as I would do with actual normal top cast episodes. Without further ado, let me get to the meat of the matter in this particular newsletter. My meanderings and ramblings for this particular first episode. So what's been cropping up for me recently across both media and social media is the matter of manners, especially in public discourse. For a while, I bought into the idea that manners were just time-wasting, a bit of an obstacle to saying clearly and directly what you needed to get across, get to the point, and so on. In many cases, this is true, legal or business situations, let's say. But we also exist in a culture, and the culture has traditions, and they exist for a reason. And what is interesting to me is academic and intellectual culture where manners seem to have swiftly, in some places at least, gone on the decline and it only appears to have, from what I can see, negative consequences. It's astonishing to me that many of those I looked up to when I was a teenager or a student just entering university or still at school myself, Perhaps these people might not have been my intellectual heroes as such, but, you know, the academics who both taught me personally and those who occupied the stratospheric positions of expertise and authority at our oldest public institutions of learning are so often these days, in terms of their public personas, so very impolite and impolitic not least online. It seems they don't care how good a job they do of turning off the young from their own areas of expertise, the areas of expertise that I used to and continue to find so interesting. Like, I looked up to, and I continue to, look up to Professor Paul Davies when I was younger. 
I knew he was a great physicist and science communicator. Of course he would be above crass and petty disagreement. He was every bit a polite gentleman. He remains that as far as I know, but then he's also not on social media from what I can tell. And there are other important exceptions that are on social media and who do manage to remain perfectly courteous. One might think that's hard, but is it? I see too many academics rising to the bait, although it's not really rising, it's descending into a gutter of personal insults rather often. And so we have some of the brightest young minds, young men and women, turning less to science at times, turning their nose up at it, and more readily turning to, well, as a quick example, crypto and entrepreneurship. Now, maybe that's all for the good. Maybe that's all for a better world. Why not? When the examples of clear minds and engaging discussions are often seemingly framed in more mature language and depth than the, well, I have to say, rather more childish, partisan and surlish content found in the feeds of some scientists online, why wouldn't you turn to the entrepreneurs for advice and for heroes, intellectual heroes even? Or insofar as some business people are partisan and might be discourteous and rude online, well, at least they're rich and having fun. The scientists and intellectuals aren't even doing that much so often. They seem to hate their work, despise those they work for, and don't seem particularly happy with their own life choices at times. So that's what I'm reacting to today. Is there one thing that has set me off? Well, there's not one thing. There's just a number of things that came one after another. But the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, came from a historian of science. I won't mention who he is, but he was writing about Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'll come back to that soon. But, you know, me, myself, when I'm not producing yet more material about how I agree with David Deutsch and Karl Popper, I am producing material about how I disagree with some other thinker like Steven Pinker in places, or Neil deGrasse Tyson himself, or Bostrom and so on. But what I would hope is that however passionate I get on those points, or however much I chastise some of their content, I hope I'm not being rude in doing so. I'm not trying too much to analyse the psychology of those people. I'm more interested in their ideas and how those ideas represent misconceptions about reality. And yet I read things like, I'll link to the article if you're listening to this, where I read it and I wonder why, just why is some of that language chosen? Like, for example, even if it's a joke that Tyson, quote, knows nothing, why say he is, quote, spouting total crap and so on? Like, I disagree with Tyson a lot, but like I say, and I'll come back to this again, I think it actually hampers the potential for error correction, for learning. Sometimes I think, forget compulsory military service or school, everyone should be forced into doing a two-year front-facing tour of duty in retail at times. There's just a lot of rudeness out there in society, as if some people have never been on the receiving end of it, so they just give it out a lot. They don't know what it feels like to experience rudeness from the other side. I do not mean only online. I mean, you see it so often, the so-called COVID Karen who came out in force, especially in retail settings. Yes, yes, sometimes the shopkeeper was the person behaving absurdly, but rather more often it was the crazy customer who was under the misapprehension they had a right to service or some such. 
that the supermarket amounted to the public square, and any poor employee on their 11th hour of a 12th hour shift for the sixth day straight that week really needed to hear about how it was their constitutional right both to be served and to not wear a mask amidst a cloud of expletives. COVID certainly exacerbated all of that and highlighted, to me, the importance of courtesy, the efficiency of manners. If you want the transaction to go as fast, smoothly and friendly as possible in the grocery store or restaurant or anywhere at all, obey every single rule of the establishment to the letter and get through it nicely. Wear the mask, keep your distance, smile and have a nice day. Okay, common sense I would have thought, but apparently not everyone has learned this lesson. And then we turn to the academic world, where one would think there are a few rungs above this. Perhaps sometimes some professors have been told since the third grade that they are the smartest person in the room and everyone has hung on their every word. Perhaps it takes some time before someone finally disagrees with them because that someone isn't reciting a textbook that they are also aware of because perhaps they've moved beyond it or not. Maybe they're a crank or maybe just mistaken. But there is a method to avoid madness here, and it's manners. Again, on academia, how many have held other jobs? This is not to say such a thing is necessary. It's not necessary. I know academics who are perfectly and consistently polite at every turn, online and offline. And they've had the scholarships all throughout their formal learning, got the grants and positions immediately, and really, if the word privilege is to apply anywhere, it's to them. And yet, they are wonderfully nice people. But there are others. There are others. I guess they're everywhere, and the PhD credential, or earning tenure, or its near equivalent, doesn't require one to pass over a hurdle labelled pleasant human being. Okay, so we cannot always be consistently pleasant. But how about online, when you've got professor or doctor in your bio alongside your pronouns and you are engaged in a discussion about your precise domain of expertise, you keep up a modicum of courtesy. So far myself, I've been lucky. I've rarely been on the receiving end, happily, but I've seen others so chastised by the highly qualified. It's not a great advertisement for the institution. All else left aside... And no, I'm not going to be calling out particular names on this issue. As someone who follows in the tradition of Popper, I'm an admirer of so-called critical rationalism. Now, critical rationalism is all about being critical, criticism, finding flaws and errors in claims and seeking to correct them. And criticism gets a bad rap because people misdirect their criticism away from ideas and onto people. And perhaps that's a beef I have. It perpetuates this notion of criticism as being a bad thing or an undesirable thing or an unpleasant thing and that critics are people who are critical of people, which they shouldn't be. I say it's a category error actually to criticise a person because a person is that entity that generates ideas and can direct its attention here or there. A person can choose what to focus on. A person has that capacity to freely choose and create All of that together is the way ideas, knowledge, is generated and then criticised. But to criticise the entity that does the idea making is to confuse the product, the idea, with the process, the person. The idea should be criticised and corrected 
for the purposes of progress. In other words, for improving it. But criticizing the very means of creating the idea in the first place, the person in other words, I think that's just plain pointless because we don't know and no one knows how they really create ideas at all in the first place. I've said more on this elsewhere, so I won't linger on it here and now any further. But criticism can, of course, be undesirable if it's being offered where and when it's not wanted. But it's always undesirable when it's directed at a person. For example, a field close to my heart is astrophysics. I worried out loud recently that there has been a turn in the culture of astrophysics that they're not merely indifferent to wealth and commercial success anymore, but the culture is actively antagonistic towards it. I compared this very modern phenomena in that science, in astrophysics, to the way in which wealthy individuals and those who explored the cosmos once upon a time had a very symbiotic relationship. But no more, it seems, or not to the same extent. And this is not least because astrophysicists in particular can rely on governments for their funding almost exclusively. And so they feel free to turn their nose up at business people. It's a shame, but you can read more about my thoughts on that turn for the worse at bretthall.org forward slash blog forward slash astronomical disdain. It's a blog entry called Astronomical Disdain. It's a lengthy piece, but what I describe in it are the very personal attacks on, for example, the character of Elon Musk. Of course, he's a big, rich boy. He can take it, no doubt. But it's coming from professional astrophysicists who should be natural allies of his. Now, I put that post out a little over a week ago, and it's very long, but then this week, more. More of the same, or in the same vein. Well, now, a contingent of astrophysicists. I don't follow many on my own main Twitter account, but I go searching just to see what the astrophysicists are up to. And so I get a good feel for what the community online is like. And this particular contingent of astrophysicists that I was checking in with were complaining out loud on social media once more about their work. And this, by the way, is not unusual. But this time, they were complaining about their very own students at university. So I guess it must be examinations time or something. And they are there bemoaning quite publicly about a perceived lack of effort or some such. I don't know if these professors of astrophysics think their own students might not be following them, or their own employers might not be reading their tweets, or perhaps no one cares about any of this, which would be bizarre and even more sad to some extent. But anyway, one junior professor, who again will go unnamed, appeared in my feed and complaining about how in the course they taught, an undergrad physics course I presume, Anyway, in this course he was teaching, that in theory his course runs for 15 weeks. And in this course, one or more of his students didn't turn up for the first X number of weeks. And, well, perhaps most of the weeks these students didn't turn up, one or more of these students. And they only turned up in the final two weeks or so, and then tried to cram it all in. And his comment was basically to say, not only can that not work, it's not permitted by him to work. And his colleagues and all of his peers offered him words of support online. Only one comment at all tried to push back about how some young people find undergraduate subjects, 
like they find high school subjects, too slow and simple and boring. And they can get what needs to be done in 15 weeks done in those final two weeks. Many people can get done in two weeks what it takes others 15 weeks of work to do. I would add that given those students experienced over the last two years something remarkable with COVID, it should be expected they have a lower tolerance now for 15 weeks on or off campus, sitting through a series of bi-weekly lectures plus tutorials where the pace is far slower than how they quickly learn to do literally anything else in their lives, especially online. Why not just assess the students regardless of how often they turn up to lectures or participate and see if they meet the standards that ostensibly you're setting and assessing with examinations? What is it about attendance that teachers and lecturers are still getting hung up about? I mean, the assessments are bad enough, but attendance? Why can't a student do the learning elsewhere, where they like, in their own time? And if they do, and you disagree with it, could we at least keep the professor's complaints about them, the students, offline? <sighs> I might be getting old. <laughs> I just cannot imagine my own professors back in the day when I was going through undergraduate complaining out loud online about all of this. Of course, maybe they did complain about it, but that's what staff rooms and cafe conversations with their colleagues and immediate superiors are for, aren't they? Or have things changed that much? Has the culture descended into discourtesy that much? On top of all this, I would add, the universities seem in many ways to be in a very precarious position. It's true that, for the moment, their product, which is credentialing, as much or more than it's educating, seems to have an unending stream of customers. It seems to. But as many observe, maybe that's because the customers they're accepting are different to the customers that they used to accept. Or in other people's language, standards are being lowered. However, because those customers are changing, the others that are no longer choosing to attend the university you know, many have now realised that learning to code, for example, outside of the university system confers almost all of the advantages, and more, with none of the drawbacks of the university. And writers, bloggers, YouTubers, creative types, technology types, and even some kinds of science types can see the benefit of not extending what is really their high school experience for just another four years at university. The knowledge needed to succeed in the modern knowledge economy might be better found outside the university system. So if universities want to attract the best and not merely those that perhaps have no other options, as the trend might seem to have started to become, a little more marketing from the academics, at least on social media, might be in order. Manners is marketing, I would have thought. Don't turn off potential customers. I mean your students. No, I mean your customers. With a public-facing stream of complaints on Twitter and elsewhere about your horrible work life and your lazy students. High school students who potentially would have joined your course are reading this stuff and they're turned off. Look, it might well be the case that institutions called universities aren't going anywhere at all, I guess. But those working in them are in the precarious place I just mentioned because the demand for certain things, certain kinds of learning, certain subjects is changing. So your expertise, which is in high demand today, 
might not be tomorrow, perhaps. And the university, as it exists now, as more or less the sole centre of higher learning, or perhaps the most prestigious centre of higher learning in a community, is in a precarious situation. There is a sense some universities have become rather like libraries in their communities. They exist in a market which barely exists and with no competition because the state protects them from needing to perform. And the market is not learning. The market is credentialing. Libraries still exist, but just go to a library sometime. I know what those in my area are like. They're more or less just places for school and university students to study. Like cafes, but with more books and less noise. Very few people are taking books off the shelves at the rates they once did. They don't need to. And everyone on their smartphone has access to all the books and information any library can offer. The library offers space and public toilets. And perhaps the government should provide that, although I am with Penn Gillette on this one, and I'll link to a YouTube video about what he has to say about libraries and the extent to which we should be extracting tax money from people to fund libraries. The same might be true for universities. There is an inertia to this whole thing. University education, like school education, really is the horse and cart trotting along the highway when there are Teslas zooming along the fast lane, high-speed rail on the other side, and jet airliners flying overhead. And you're still told, well, you're going to need to get onto the horse and cart to get from A to B. There might always be a demand for engineering and medical credentialing at an institution with some sort of government imprimatur, or at least some third-party guarantee of quality. And universities have the advantage of political power. Leaders, politicians, are rather often expert and report-driven. We need to follow the advice from experts, lest they are accused of ignoring the science or ignoring the experts. And so the experts from universities will always provide studies that say how beneficial universities are to the economy. What else can politicians do? Wait for a collision with reality, ultimately, I suppose. I personally hope the universities don't enter a phase of further decline. I just want them to turn around, to focus more on providing quality education. In the pure sciences, there is a strong argument at the moment. It may just be the case that groupthink is slowing progress. And young people who come to understand this phenomena in high school and there are some, have an advantage because they could right now be beginning to seek out alternatives to university. Why, for example, learn the physics that everyone else will learn at university for four years from 18 through to 21 years of age when those three or four years could be spent learning something truly new, getting a head start on the competition, doing what most PhD students barely begin to do even in their thesis work? As for artists and creators, well, who wants to sit through hours of material weekly on the theory when that time could be devoted to practice and production and, quite realistically, earning in this day and age? It would seem all the university can offer over free or almost free online alternatives is the credential. And even then, you can sometimes get credentialed online for free. The sought-after certificate testifying to the fact, I have the knowledge. But even then, recruiters in many spaces now know, is that degree anything like a guarantee of possessing the knowledge? Google now, apparently, 
barely considers formal university credentials and instead, for many positions, considers portfolios of work, evidence of what you have actually done out there in the real world. And should it be required, they have their own in-house credentialing system of practical coursework. So there might be good reasons, we'll see, for youngsters out of high school to completely eschew the formal tertiary education system and go for something else. One reason is, it's old, but also, if the representatives of it on social media are anything to go by, well, do you want to entrust three or four years or even more of your life to them? In some cases, the answer has to be no. So we should expect a sea change or a cultural shift when it comes to what young people with an intellectual or even creative bent aspire to do. Do they want formal training via an old institution or do they desire something else? And what will be the reaction? Well, we know since ancient times that what adults think of the youth has a tradition of regarding their rebelliousness as something hazardous and unwelcome. But I'm going to save that all for next time. Before I finish up, I just wanted to say I would rather everything I create, or almost everything, to remain entirely free and available to everyone. And my reasons for this are, well, one, the people I admire the most have always done exactly this, produce their content for free. And two, there's a long tradition of this in knowledge creation, and specifically, of course, in science, that I do not think is obviously improved on by any paid model. Three, much of my material I credit the vast bulk to, to David Deutsch, Karl Popper and others, so it feels wrong to charge for exclusive access to what I regard as, in essence, largely descending from the ideas of others. And for the work I do in spreading the ideas of Deutsch, Popper, Feynman, so on and so forth, from physics and philosophy, is something I want to go as far and wide as possible. So I don't want to limit anything by causing it to being paid. Now, I say all that by way of preface because I do accept donations. For the same reason anyone accepts payment ever, one has bills to pay and one may need to upgrade now and again at, so at times so that some of those videos that I produce can have the fancy visuals they do. So I do have a means of donation for those who would like to support me. Just go to www.bretthall.org and there on the front page are links to Patreon and PayPal. And I should let you know, for those who do contribute, over the last few months I've been happy to engage with many listeners via an asynchronous voice messaging thing using WhatsApp. My supporters are small in number, which makes that kind of interaction feasible, for now anyway. Until next time, bye-bye.